It's the middle of March, and, well, it's a little slow right now, but I've got a pair of reviews for you today on a couple of things that I use on a daily basis. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we've got a pair of kind of sort of mini reviews for your ear holes. Things are admittedly a little slow right now, given my limited resources, but the things I'm reviewing today are items that I use on a daily basis. So we're going to talk about them. Up first are a pair of keyboard cases that have stolen my heart away from Bridge. That's right. I've got two keyboard cases from Zag that are worse in some ways, but better in so many more. So much that my favorite iPad keyboard has been replaced by my new favorite iPad keyboard. Then, I've got my latest Samsung acquisition, the Samsung Galaxy Watch 3. And indeed, there are some highs and lows in this story as well. And we'll get to those, but first, we have to get to the news of the week. Jack Dorsey is selling his very first tweet, and right now the bidding is up to $2.5 million dollars. Um, what? You heard me right. Jack Dorsey is selling his first tweet. And it's not like you get to take ownership of it and edit it. Definitely not. Why would you ever want to edit a tweet, Jack Dorsey? Rather, it's being sold as a piece of digital art that you can own. You get what's called a non-fungible token based on blockchain that can't be altered at all. And it will show that you own the tweet just as if Dorsey himself had printed it and framed it and handed it over. People are really jumping onto this idea, even if the concept seems a bit funged up to me. This whole thing is a bit nebulous, to be honest. Like, I get the idea of ownership. What I don't get is... Why? Like, why would you want to be the owner of anything digital? No, that's that's not quite right, because if that was my reasoning, I wouldn't buy movies on Amazon. Why would you want to buy something that anyone can go see for free? Just type twitter.com slash jack and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll, and you can just get to the top and bookmark it. And voila, you can now view this tweet anytime you want, and there won't be a marker on it that says not allowed or anything like that. But hey! I guess someone wants to get involved in digital art. It's not up to me to yuck their yum. I'm just saying, I can think of better ways to spend $2.5 million. And by the way, patreon.com slash benefit of a doubt. And I thank you. Mackenzie Scott, ex-wife of Amazon owner Jeff Bezos, is one of the richest women in the world, due in no small part to her divorce from the richest man in the world just under two years ago. Now, I'm not accusing her of anything, Good for her, honestly, and even better for her because she got remarried to Dan Jewett, a school teacher in a private school in Seattle. And I really only bring this up because finally, finally, a teacher in a private school is getting the money that all teachers deserve. Here's wishing the happy couple all the best, and now my wife is jealous that I didn't start Amazon, but I did start the Benefit of a Doubt podcast, so there's that. 
Tim Bedford of Tech Radar got a chance to go hands-on with Oppo's rollable phone, the Oppo X2021. This is just a prototype-slash-concept device that'll probably not go on sale this year, but Bedford had some thoughts about the experience that he wanted to share. In addition to the rollable losing the crease that has become so commonly complained about in foldables, the Oppo X2021 is easily held in one hand and is seamless when opening and closing. It's just very smooth and the transitions the software makes going from small to large is actually really good at this point. There's also a couple of things that are not awesome about this device. The first is Oppo's mechanism for getting the screen to actually open and close. Oppo is using a button that you can double press or slide your finger along to open and shut the phone. Bedford mentioned that the button and specifically the slide on gesture is quite finicky when trying to get it to work correctly, but the other thing that Bedford points out is one that I can definitely get behind. The screen just doesn't get all that much bigger when the rollable opens. It goes from being a phone to being a really small tablet, and I guess that's nice for consuming some media, but it's only going from a 6.7-inch screen to a 7.4-inch screen, which is not that big of a difference. Now look, I'm a fan of this form factor, very much so. I would very much love to go hands-on with it myself because, damn, it just feels like it would be so cool, but honestly... I'm kind of waiting for a foldable that goes from being the size of an iPhone to something that's going to be the size of an iPad. Now we're talking about being truly useful and redefining how you use your devices. I will be ordering a Galaxy Fold 2 in the not-too-distant future, so maybe I'll be changing my tune. But from a backseat driver perspective, that's kind of where I am at the moment. Mark Zuckerberg, the head of Facebook, which we all know is the crappy company run by terrible people, and yes, by implication, Mark Zuckerberg is one of the terrible people that runs that crappy company. Well, Mark Zuckerberg is apparently a listener of this show. Hi, Mark. Because this week, Zuckerberg gave an interview on the Informations Podcast 411 about VR and AR and the future of VR collaboration. In the interview, Zuckerberg said that in the future, we'll be able to scan ourselves and insert that image as our avatar, making interaction even more realistic. And my goodness, Mark, wherever did you get such a marvelous idea? Oh, yeah! really kind of neat. It's like these hologram interfaces that we see in Marvel movies. And seriously, how long is it going to be before a company figures out how to use AI to do a quick body scan and just put that image in there instead of a cartoony avatar? This is really cool tech, and I'm going to be keeping an eye on it. So the only conclusion I can draw here is that Mark Zuckerberg is a listener of my show and got the idea from me, and my finder's fee check should be in the mail as we speak. But no, I'm not going to stop calling Facebook the crappy company run by terrible people just because one of those terrible people happens to be a listener. That wouldn't be fair to my other listeners who rely on my honest and completely unbiased commentary. And by the way, Mark, patreon.com slash benefit of a doubt. And I thank you. Verizon had an analyst meeting this week and announced that its newly acquired C-band Spectrum that it purchased from the FCC auction that Sasha Segan and I discussed on last week's show will only be available to customers on higher-tiered service plans, and holy crap, that was an amazing run-on sentence. 
Verizon said that only customers on premium unlimited plans like Play More, Do More, and Get More unlimited plans will be able to access that C-band spectrum. Everyone else will be stuck with Verizon's paltry please let us sell the iPhone 5G network, which is barely a step up from the 4G network. Actually, it's almost exactly the same network since 4G and 5G share the same spectrum with Verizon's dynamic spectrum sharing, which sends you a 4G signal but lights up the 5G logo on your phone. I'm just kidding, Verizon. It's actually 5G. Please don't sue me. So is this a dick move on Verizon's part? Yes. That's it. Just yes. Instead of actually building up a good 5G network for everyone, Verizon is holding back the good stuff for people who want to play more, do more, get more, and most importantly, pay much, much more. Very not cool, Verizon, and thanks for reinforcing why I'm not a Verizon subscriber. Meanwhile, T-Mobile also had a meeting with analysts and made some very different promises. T-Mobile plans to cover around 90% of Americans, which is around 300 million people, with mid-band and millimeter wave coverage by the end of 2022. Basically, according to T-Mobile, people who see a 300 megabit per second connection should then see up to a 400 megabit per second connection. People like me, who don't even get signal in their house... Well, we're probably going to stay screwed. But T-Mobile is also rolling out a new business broadband plan that also plans to increase its home internet offerings on its 5G network to 7 to 8 million customers over the next five years. So is this all better than what Verizon plans to do? Yes. That's it. Just yes. T-Mobile was already in a good spot because of its Sprint purchase, so most of T-Mobile's ambitions are already well on their way to being played out. And by the way, this is why I'm a T-Mobile subscriber. AT&T also had its analyst call this week, and... They actually didn't talk much about 5G at all. The point of today's call was to talk about broadband and fiber, and there were some interesting fact nuggets dropped. Right now, watching three hours per day of 4K video results in about 640 gigabytes of internet usage per month. That's not bad. But since the pandemic and with more people working from home, AT&T estimates that median homes will use around 1.5 terabytes per month by 2025, while the top 10% of homes will use close to 4.6 terabytes, and holy crap! I'm surprised by two things here. One, that's a ton of data, and two, <laughs> we're not already there? I know my house probably is. But the theme of AT&T's call was, heads up Verizon and T-Mobile, wireless internet connections are not going to get you there. This is all about the fiber, baby. That sexy, sexy fiber. As you may recall from my talk with Sasha Segan, fiber is pretty much already out there, built out by AT&T. Now they just have to go the last mile to people's houses, and yes, that's going to be a lot of bandwidth that's suddenly available. Who needs spectrum, am I right? Now, that's also no small feat, and likely the money that AT&T saved on not bidding on Spectrum will probably go into building out this fiber network in the last mile. But it's going to be interesting to see what kind of offerings it can make once all that is done. This week, Google introduced three new ways that you can contribute to Google Maps. You can leave reviews and updates as part of a community challenge, and you can share your latest experiences with photo updates on Maps. Those two don't seem all that new. But the new one is the last one, and this one is the one that kind of 
rings my bell, you can draw new or missing roads on Google Maps. And what that means is Google has made it easier for you to report road changes with an air quotes, new immersive desktop road editing tool. When you see a road missing on maps.google.com, simply click on the side menu button, go to edit the map and select missing road. Now the power to map is in your hands. And Google... Have you met the internet? I'm just kind of curious because there are people out there that, I don't know, probably won't have your best interest at heart. Have you ever read wikipedia.com? I mean, come on, people. Now, don't get me wrong. Wikipedia.com is a nice website that has fairly accurate information, but there are always bad apples in that barrel, and that's going to spoil the rest of the barrel. I think that's how this saying goes. But my point is, Google, you're crowdsourcing road changes on Google Maps, which is a tool that millions of people use every day. And I have to wonder if that's really the best idea. Now, I'm sure there are going to be protections in place and moderators and things like that to keep people from playing shenanigans. But I just have to wonder if maybe it's not a bad idea to just send out employees driving cars and let's leave the mapping to the map experts and not to the same people that inspire YouTube comments. Just a thought. This week, we also had a few new device launches, which is pretty exciting, and it seems like it's been a while since we've seen some new hardware. First up is the Oppo Find X3 Pro, which has an unusual camera setup. There's a primary camera and a 2x optical telephoto lens, and a microscope lens, which can magnify objects up to 60 times and let you see things like the pixel arrays and monitors and stuff like that. To call it niche would be fairly generous, but it could be a neat party trick to show off at, you know, parties. Like, hey, Bill, put that ice cube down on the table. Look at this, everybody. Now, don't get me wrong. It's new, and it actually sounds kind of neat. It's the kind of thing that, like, I as a nerd would really be into. I'm just not sure how much popular appeal it has, and I'm not sure how actually useful it would be, except for people who, you know already have a microscope. All the same, we'll be able to watch those brine shrimp kids used to try to grow under a microscope back in the 80s. Do kids still grow brine shrimp? I don't think any of mine ever did. Anyway, the rest of the phone is pretty standard issue flagship for 2021, Snapdragon 888, 12 gigabytes of RAM, and 256 gigabytes of storage. The display is also a 10-bit display, which Oppo is proud to tell you, can show you things with a billion with a B colors as opposed to the paltry 16.7 million colors that we get today. That's a thing, I guess. But all the same, new hardware is exciting, and I would be excited to try it. So Oppo, call me. Not to be outdone by literally anyone anywhere, Asus has a new Republic of Gamers phone. The ROG Phone 5 came out this week, and boy, this is a phone. It's actually one of the first gaming phones that seems to really be stretching the definition of a phone beyond what we normally think of as a phone. This phone is absurd in so many different ways. It's amazing, and I mean that in a good way. It's really amazing. Let's just get this one out of the way right off the bat. 18 gigabytes of RAM. 18, that's a double-digit number, closer to 25 than it is to 10 gigabytes of RAM in just 
Holy, what the hell? That's for the ultimate version of the phone, by the way. So if you're wondering what goes above Ultra, it's apparently ultimate. There are actually three different versions of this phone, the ROG Phone 5, the ROG Phone 5 Pro, and the ROG Phone 5 Ultimate. And as for specs, I'll just let you imagine some stupid high numbers for RAM, storage, and battery. And trust me, whatever number you imagine, the answer to that is higher. Additionally, what you get from these phones are extra accessories that help cool down the phone and add controllers to the phone, and you also get extra air triggers on the sides and the back of the phone, which help you trigger on-screen buttons without having your sausage fingers get in the way of your game. Basically, this phone is less of a phone and more of a gaming console that also happens to make calls and take photos. And speaking of which... The cameras on this phone are kind of crappy, but I mean, seriously, they didn't have much room for cameras once they crammed in 18 gigabytes of RAM in there. Jesus, Asus, you've made your point. Now, I'd love to go hands-on with this thing sometime, so stay tuned, but for now, I honestly think the best thing we can do is I'll just stand back and marvel. The last device to launch this week was the TicWatch Pro S, which is basically the TicWatch Pro 3, but with everything downgraded a step, or in some cases, three steps or more. The watch is smaller with a smaller screen, and the processor is now two generations older than the TicWatch Pro 3, and all that comes at a cost of just $50 down from that TicWatch Pro 3, which seems, in the opinion of wearable.com, stupid. Co-producer Cliff has the TicWatch Pro 3 and agrees that it's better to just spend the extra 50 bucks and get miles better performance out of Wear OS, assuming you're jonesing for a Wear OS watch in the first place. Personally, I've been using the Samsung Galaxy Watch 3, and that review is coming up in just a minute, but nothing about that experience has changed my mind that it is the second best watch operating system out there behind watchOS on the Apple Watch. So no, I'm not hopping over to jump onto a $250 downgraded watch anytime soon. This announcement is frankly quite disappointing to fans of wearables, which I am, so this is my disappointed face. Daring Fireball broke the story this week that Apple was suing a former employee over leaked documents that were given to an air quotes correspondent regarding a project that is so secret that Apple won't even refer to it by name in legal documents, but we all know it's pretty much AR and VR glasses. Or at least that's what we're assuming, because honestly, it's the only secret project that Apple has that was actively reported on by any correspondents in the given time frame. As for who the correspondent is, all signs point to Mark Gurman of Bloomberg, which makes sense because Mark Gurman is Apple over at Bloomberg. It's interesting that Apple is pursuing this litigation, seemingly wanting to tamp down on leaks hardcore and send a message to other employees like, if you want to mess with the bull, you're going to get the horns, baby. And I get that. What I don't get is that according to the legal filing on the former employee's departure, their credentials are killed at midnight on their last date of employment. And at 10.30 p.m. that night, Homeboy logged in one last time. But seriously... How is Apple so lax in its security? I've left jobs at supermarkets before that had my locker taken away from me before I even left the building. I've left jobs that had my email shut down literally days before my last day. Like, as soon as I walked out the door, they shut that shit down. Apple's all like, by the way, you have until midnight if you decide you want to screw us. I place this blame squarely at Apple's feet. You gotta tighten things up there, Apple. Come on, let's get serious. 
And finally, and this is way over my head, so bear with me on this, but according to scientists, a physical warp drive, as in the engine that drives the USS Enterprise, is actually possible. Previously, it had been thought that a warp drive was impossible because it required negative exotic particles that we didn't know how to create. Well, in a paper published this week, scientists demonstrated the theoretical possibility that one could actually warp space-time using common household items. Okay, I'm kidding about that part. But what they said was the technology and the physics exist today to make it possible. We're still nowhere near being actually able to do it because the power generation requirements alone would be insane. But now scientists think that warp drive might be theoretically possible in tens or hundreds of years. Not like a few tens, like lots and lots of tens, but still. That means if everything goes perfectly, like our grandchildren could be riding on the USS Enterprise, and that raises a much more scientific and cultural problem. People, listen up here, pay attention. Start teaching this to your children now. The first interstellar warp-capable ship has to be, has to be called the Enterprise. We cannot screw this up and let it be called the Millennium Falcon. So start teaching your kids now, Enterprise, Enterprise, Enterprise. And when they have kids, you get your kids to tell their kids, Enterprise, Enterprise, Enterprise. We cannot drop this ball, people. This is just too important. You probably shop at Amazon, right? Sure you do. I shop there, honestly, way more than I probably should. Fortunately, there's a great way that you can do what you do and help out the show at the same time. If you visit benefitofadow.com slash support, you'll find a link to my store on Amazon. Click on the link and voila, you're at Amazon. So go ahead and search up something and if you buy it, I might get a small commission, and it won't cost you anything extra. There are more great options for helping me out at benefitofadow.com support. That's benefitofthedow.com support. You'll get a list of all my affiliations and monetization options all wrapped up in a neat little package at benefitofadow.com support. I hope you visit, I hope you go shopping, and as always, I thank you for listening. If you flip your phone over to YouTube today, you'll see that there's another video up on the old YouTube channel, and that video involves two iPad keyboards that our friends from Zag sent over. These keyboards are the Messenger Folio 2 and the Zag Pro Keys. Now, since the dawn of this podcast, I have been trumpeting about the bridge keyboard that I've been using on my iPad, essentially turning it into a mini laptop. But, dear listener, since I first slid my iPad into those metal and rubber claws, I've regretted just one thing. Damn, that keyboard is phenomenal, but I cannot use my iPad in portrait. This presented a bit of a problem. Fast forward to about a month ago, when I reached out to my friends at Zag, and side note, they're pretty awesome over there at Zag. I asked them about this, and they said, yeah, we we might be able to help you with that. So overcame the Zag Messenger Folio 2 and the Zag Pro Keys. And both of these are iPad cases, which work on the 7th and 8th generation of iPad. They are both keyboard cases which protect the iPad front and back. They both have a sort of textured cloth exterior, but I'd be willing to bet that it's kind of a TPU material, kind of a soft plastic, but don't quote me on that. 
They both charge with USB Type-C, which is awesome. They both have magnetic closures that the iPad interacts with, meaning the iPad goes to sleep when they close. They also both have a way of storing the Apple Pencil, which is awesome since I just got an Apple Pencil for Christmas. And they both flip out and stand the iPad up with the keyboard exposed. You know, pretty typical of what you see from a keyboard case and an iPad. So let's get into the differences, and I'm going to start with the Messenger Folio. That case has a hard plastic shell that the iPad slides into, which holds it in. The pencil holder is a simple elastic loop at the top. When you flip the case open, a tab slips into a slot and kind of locks in, meaning that even if the iPad tips backwards, the case will hold it upright. This makes it great for lap typing. The keys on the keypad are square chiclet style with great pitch and great travel. They may not be as nice as the bridge keyboard, but they are really close. You have all the keys of a normal keyboard, including the Mac buttons of Command and Option. There's also a Function button, which doesn't seem to have a function except for checking the battery level. That part's a little strange. There's an additional row across the top of the keyboard with various functions like multitasking, media play controls, volume, stuff like that. When you flip the case around to the back, the keyboard actually turns off so you can hold the iPad in portrait and do whatever it is you wanted to do and not worry about pressing keys on the back. When you close the case, the case stays closed magnetically attached to the iPad. Overall, this is a really nice keyboard that turns your iPad into a laptop, is very functional, and if this were the end of the review, that would be good enough. But dear listener, it is not the end of the review. Because for just another $20, you can get the Zag Pro Keys. And the cool part about the Zag Pro Keys is that it's kind of two cases in one. The first case is a protective TPU case that fits around the iPad. And this case attaches magnetically to the keyboard part, which means when you don't need it, the keyboard can go away. Not around behind the device, but totally away. The pencil holder is embedded in that first TPU case, so the pencil is always with you. Also awesome. There's also a little flap that magnetically closes the case and clasps it shut. It's very slick. The keys on the keyboard are also rounded squares, which also have great pitch and great travel. I wouldn't say I prefer this keyboard to the Folio 2. It's about the same, maybe a little bit better. But the Zag Pro Keys also uses magnets to attach the iPad to the keyboard when it's open, and there are two positions to which it can open, so you can change the angle to suit your preference or your environment. Like the Folio 2, there's a function button, and I can't figure out what it's there for. There's also a row of keys across the top with similar controls, but the Zag Pro Keys has an advantage over the Folio. The Pro Keys can connect with two different devices, and there's a button for each of them in that top row. What that means is I can connect my computer to one button and my iPad to the other. And if I'm typing something up on my iPad but I need to interact with my computer, I don't have to move the iPad out of the way. I can just switch over, type what needs to be typed, and then switch back. It's, it's really awesome. Another keyboard I just picked up from Logitech has three such buttons, so I can add my phone to that one as well but that's probably a different review. Now the Zag Pro Keys does add a lot of bulk to your iPad that the Folio doesn't. I don't have weight specifications, but the Pro Keys is noticeably heavier than the Folio 2. Plus, the hard rubber case the Pro Keys uses to protect your iPad has very rigid buttons that make using volume and power controls a little hard to use around the outside of the iPad. Now all of those have keys on the keyboard to use, but it's still worth mentioning that they're quite stiff. But overall, this is a great keyboard. They're both great keyboards, and I 
kind of love them just a little bit, which makes me a little sad because I really love the bridge keyboard as well. But that portrait versus landscape limitation kind of did the bridge keyboard in in my world. It sucks, but there it is. So therefore, if you were to ask me today what a good keyboard case for the iPad is, it is the Zag keyboards, hands down. What they lack in keyboard equivalents to the bridge, they more than make up for in terms of freedom and versatility. I simply love that I can use my iPad in portrait again, and these keyboards did that for me. Wearables are a part of our technological culture these days, but they're still a bit niche in the eyes of a general public. Personally, I wouldn't be without one, and that's coming from a guy who didn't wear a watch for close to 20 years from, well, I guess the time I got a pager until the time I got the Moto 360 original during my pocket nowadays. And no, being without a watch seems absurd, but my philosophies about having a smartwatch have evolved since 2014, when I thought that apps would make the watch. That's really no longer the case. Now it's functionality which makes the watch, and we'll get to that right now in our full review of the Samsung Galaxy Watch 3. Confession time, I picked up the Samsung Galaxy Watch 3 for a very practical reason. Samsung had just cleared the FDA for its watch's ability to take your blood pressure. I'm on the wrong side of 40 and on the wrong side of 200, Okay, fine, 250. Okay, fine, hovering around the 300-pound mark. But that spells one thing, hypertension. It's a constant battle, but we're really not here to talk about my health, except, yes, we kind of are. That'll become clear in a second. Because the reason I bought this watch was kind of to keep an eye on my blood pressure. And that's going to be the first thing I tackle so I can get my, spoiler alert, frustrations out of the way before we delve into the rest of the experience. You see, when Samsung proudly announced that its watches could now take your blood pressure, it left out one tiny little fact. Namely, the fact that Samsung would not be taking your blood pressure. They'd be leaning on a third-party app maker called MyBP Lab to do it. Blood pressure is not a part of Samsung Health, and it took me weeks to figure this out, which is honestly kind of embarrassing. But it was also frustrating because every time I tried to set up my BP lab, it asked me to put my finger onto the blood oxygen sensor on the back of my Samsung phone. And you're probably thinking to yourself, blood sensor on the back of a Samsung phone? They haven't had that since the Galaxy S9. And you would be correct. The app insisted that I put my finger on a sensor that hadn't existed for years. So I finally gave in and called Samsung about it, ready to tear the poor guy who answered the phone a new one. In the end, I had to delete the app and wipe the watch. And while I was in the middle of explaining to that poor customer service rep that I worked in tech support for over a decade, and I knew when I was being walked through step one, when I needed to be walked through step 20 by this point, and oh, hey, what do you know? started working. So I very humbly apologized and went about my business. But the MyBP Lab app is still a crappy way to track your blood pressure because after each reading, it wants to talk to you about how your day's going and how you're feeling and I'm feeling pretty annoyed. Is annoyed on this list? And by the way, my blood pressure is still high. <laughs> Wonder why. And if you say, is it all the Dairy Queen? Well, you're not entirely wrong, but you can just shut the hell right up, mister. Anyway, so that's my blood pressure story. The good news, I can track my blood pressure. The bad news is, 
doing so raises my blood pressure. So let's get on with the watch. I have the 45mm watch in black because I'm boring. Sorry. I got it with a leather band, not because I'm a fan of leather bands, I'm really not, but because the sport hybrid band didn't really tell me enough about it to decide whether I'd like it or not, so leather it is. The Galaxy Watch 3 still has the rotating bezel that is very useful, plus two buttons on the right side. One is for apps and the other is a sort of back button, and I can never really remember which is which, so I usually hit one and then the other in rapid succession to get where I need to go. And speaking of which, we'll get to the software in just a little bit. I should also mention that I got the non-LTE version of the watch because I don't want to pay for a data plan and I never go anywhere without my phone, and that includes jogging because I never go jogging were you not paying attention when I said I was close to 300 pounds. Now that I feel bad about myself again, let's just move on. On the back of the watch are a heart monitor, a speaker and microphone for taking calls, and Qi wireless charging coils, which is how the watch charges. Speaking of which, there's a 340 milliamp hour battery, which is admittedly a little disappointing in the battery life department. With the current watch face I use, the battery lasts for about two days on a charge, which isn't terrible, but just also not very awesome. One thing that I've learned about smartwatches is that the battery life varies greatly depending on how you use it. Continuous heart monitoring takes a toll. I have mine set to every 10 minutes, but even more than that, your watch face will be a battery killer. The watch face I have has battery, steps, time, date, and weather, and easy access buttons for daily activity and workout measurements. So that's a lot to put on the face of your watch. It's five complications. All things considered, I guess saying the battery is disappointing is a bit harsh. Two days, considering all of that, is actually not too bad. All the same, I want to make some adjustments to see if I can get that up to three days. The software is good on Tizen, Tizen 5.5.0.2 to be precise. It's very simplistic. You rotate the crown or swipe left for notifications, rotate or swipe to the right for widgets, such as my BP lab, and yeah, don't get me started or my blood pressure will start to go up again. Notifications are good on the watch. I can read emails and texts and the like, and I can do quick replies, which is what I can do with most smartwatches. Workout detection is also fairly accurate. It knows when I start up a rigorous game of Beat Saber, which is, yeah, about the only way I work out until spring gets here and I can get my bike out again. The watch has Samsung Pay built in, but to be honest, my phone is always in my hand, so I usually forget that Samsung Pay is in my watch. I have tested in a few locations, and it works just fine, though MST has been removed from the Watch 3, just like in the Galaxy Ultra. Bummer, but I get why you did it, Samsung. But let's talk about the other benefit to having a smartwatch, fitness. Again, wrong side of 300 pounds, so I'm not a fitness junkie, obviously. But I do like to close those rings, or hearts, as Samsung's legal team insists on calling them. They track your steps and the number of hours in which you're active and the amount of time that you're actively, like, actually exercising or exerting yourself. This is all tied into the Samsung Health ecosystem, and the Samsung Health app is a kind of a good one. The watch also periodically reminds you to stand up and move around. I'm on Team Torso Twist myself, so maybe you can join me someday. Overall, it's a good device that will help you track how often you're active and how often you frankly need to be active. I understand my listener demographics is a lot younger than me, but trust me, you young bucks, it's all going to catch up to you someday. 
And that's what really all this is about, fitness. We've fought and fought and tried to fight it, but at the end of the day, a smartwatch is about fitness tracking. It's not about apps, though there are apps. It's not about mobile payments, though those are there and they're actually pretty cool. So in my world, a smartwatch is about fitness tracking and it's about notifications. Apps are nice, watch faces are nice. As long as it gets those two things down, I'm good. So do I need a $300 smartwatch to do that? Probably not. I have a Mi Band 5 that does just fine for $50. I have a Wise Watch coming in the next month or so that the jury is definitely still out there, but might do what I want for $20. But Samsung does have a really solid smartwatch with thousands of watch faces that you can use to make it look fancy or motivate you to get work done or let you answer a call while you're running around the house looking for your damn phone that's in between the couch cushions again. And that phone call thing, that's one thing that most fitness trackers don't do. And is that worth $300? Not really in my world. And yes, by the way, I spent my own money on this. So this is a tacit admission that I probably wasted some money on this. But I don't think I wasted all that much. Because beyond notifications and fitness tracking, the Samsung Watch looks great and feels premium. It has thousands of watch faces that I can choose from. It does take my blood pressure, even if that process sucks. But at the end of the day, this is a piece of technology and one that will probably be outdated within a year, maybe two. Next year's Galaxy Watch is rumored to have glucose monitoring, which is valuable for everyone, not just diabetics. So yeah, at that time, I'll probably wish I had that. My one caveat is that I enjoy the fitness tracking it does now. So if I had to put a price on all that, I'm probably in the neighborhood of like $200. That's probably what it's worth to me. And personally, that's not bad. Personally, at this stage of the game, if you're looking at the Galaxy Watch 3, I'd suggest picking up a Wise Watch for 20 bucks and just kind of waiting until the Watch 4 is announced. Even if there's no glucose monitoring, there's a good chance that there's going to be other improvements. Maybe built-in blood pressure monitoring. Wouldn't that be a hoot? But the watch needs something a little bit more to be worth the $300 plus asking price. This watch doesn't have it, but maybe the Galaxy 4 watch will. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I would like to thank Zag for sending me those two keyboards to test out. And as always, Zag had zero editorial input on this review. These are my words. I'd like to not thank Samsung for not sending me the Galaxy Watch 3 to test out. That was a watch I spent my own money on. And yes, these are my own words. I'd like to thank co-producer Cliff for all of his hard work behind the scenes. But most of all, and as always... I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.